house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. So they got him after all. You assume he was killed? No, 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 not. Well, he was in perfectly good health. He, he had his enemies. Indeed, he was murdered. God, a murder here. God rest his soul. Someone was rummaging around my cabin in the middle of the night. No one would listen to me. If there was a murder... What is going on? Then there was a murderer. The murderer is with us. And every one of you is a suspect. And who are you? My name is Hercule Poirot, and I'm probably the greatest detective in the world. Hello, and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that uses whatever damn accent we please. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my ostentatious mustache, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Uh... The mustache just kind of keeps growing and growing. <laughs> like, you know that thing they say about dead bodies that they never stop growing hair? Hair, and and it's one other thing. And it's like hair nails, and fingernails? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, I feel like once Hercule Poirot dies, it's going to sprout roots like a tree. You have to cremate him, <laughs> otherwise the mustache will take over the world. It's. Do you remember... Um, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, the joke in Robin Hood Men in Tights, where every time they cut back to Richard Lewis as Prince John, the like the mole on his face just keeps getting bigger. Uh, that, but uh, but for uh, Hercule Poirot's uh, uh, mustache, it feels like every time they say his name, it's it's more there's more oomph to it. Kenneth Branagh really is. Um, just sort of backstroking Finding through as he goes along. this performance. Indeed. It's one of the, okay. So here's the thing: so many things about this remake of Murder on the Orient Express feel uh, over the top and too much. And I'm like, that's what I want out of this movie. And yet, why do I walk away from this movie feeling so unsatisfied? I feel like I that's feel the like bottom because line. it's made by someone without a sense of humor. <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad. Except, I do think Poirot himself is kind of a funny character. Maybe he just like takes all the good stuff for himself. Is that the thing? Is that the pathology we want to write onto Kenneth Branagh for this movie? Because you're right. Like, there is no fun to be had for any of the other ca- uh, characters in this movie. And it's like, why? That's I think maybe where I come down is why would you gather a cast this self consciously star studded? And then basically put them through the paces of these one-on-one scenes with Poirot that don't have a ton of sparkle to them. Well, there's not a lot of chemistry. I mean, I think the biggest problem of this movie is you can tell when people who are sharing scenes together (laughs) 
were absolutely not on set together. And, like, there's no real chemistry. It feels like it's kind of played way more dour than it should be. And it's like you have this very famous, very splashy cast. You should be allowing them to have a lot more fun than they're having. Like, So do we know this about this movie, that it was sort of filmed... Uh, scattershot that way? I mean, in the way that it's edited, Kenneth Branagh is certainly not afraid of us thinking that way, especially um, redacted and Michelle Pfeiffer's scene. Uh, I, I, all right, here's the, here's what I'm going to say on the, on the subject of redacted. Yes. I'm not doing There's that. nothing to say about redacted in this movie, so... Okay, we're going to... It's Johnny Depp we're talking about. Like, I'm not going to be afraid to say his name. Like, he's not a boogeyman. Like, he's not... He holds no power here. Like, he's in this movie briefly... He sucks as a person, but like he's an actor in this movie. I'm I'm not going to be quite so precious about that. Like right. you can do what you want, but I I, I don't know. Um, I think but you're right. The, the scene with him and Pfeiffer, especially, is like you only ever see the other character over their shoulder when the other person is speaking. Sure, and you know it's it's not good. It's um, no, it's it's not, and and. And, like, I get that, like, we're working from a source material. Like, we're working from a story that is in place before this. So, like, there are expectations and there are only maybe so many places you can go with this in terms of, like, what characters get to interact with each other and what characters don't. But, like, there certainly were changes made from this version from the, like, 1974 version, right? The Sidney sure. Lumet version. So, like, it's not <laughs> like they were... The Imagine Dragons song in the trailer. Okay, I was I wrote we'll that down to mention it, because, holy God, I had forgotten that that was the case. And, it like, became a meme of people putting ridiculous songs at the end of the trailer, like, recutting the trailer and then putting, like, Super Trooper on it or well like, so we can let's talk about that now because like it's the trailer so like we can like if we're do- going chronologically like before we get into the movie we'll get into the trailer because i had seen this movie at a one of those sneak preview screenings that i had every once in a while in. would get no not snuck into just don't <gasps> tell them that i worked for uh media <laughs> you work you company. wore a very large mustache and spoken right dialect um, this is how I had seen Tulip Fever uh, very early. I had seen, uh, I believe I saw Annihilation early this way. So um, the pandemic kind of killed that because I stopped wanting to go to incredibly crowded screenings full of uh, randos. But anyway, um, saw this uh, in a sneak preview screening a good several months before it came out. And again, you see the movie, they pass out the cards, they ask you a bunch of questions about what you liked about it, what you didn't. Um, this, These cards were a little less self-consciously nervous about the movie than the Tulip Fever ones. The Tulip Fever ones famously asked multiple times whether you liked the title, <laughs> which, um, uh, which I can understand, but they never did change that title. Um, so you filled out the cards. They ask a few people to stay back. Uh, I was not uh, asked to stay back, which is fine by me because um, I'd rather get out of there at that point. At that point, I'm like, it's all it's taking me to like actually fill out the card. I just want to like, I've seen the movie. I've gotten out what I've got to, you know, need to get out of this situation and now I want to leave. Um, but I walk out and of course, who is looming over the exit of this theater, but Harvey Weinstein. And so, I was like, oh. This is still Tulip Fever. No, this is Murder Train Express. Why? This was a Fox movie. 
Oh, maybe I'm mixing up stories then. Did Weinstein have nothing to no hand in this? Then I am mixing up stories. Then it was Tulip Fever. Um, it's fun. It's interesting because it's the exact same theater. So I'm having the exact same sort of like sense memory um, of walking out of it. You're right. It was Harvey Weinstein was looming over the Tulip Fever, which makes more sense. Um, this one, Murder on, Murder on the Orient Express, though, I remember walking out of it and being like, I don't know what they would change to make this better. It was just decidedly middling, and I was like, I wonder how they're going to sell this movie in a way that makes it seem more fun than it is, because it's just not very fun. And you want it to be fun, because it's a fucking murder mystery. And then I go, and then the trailer comes out all this time later, and the Imagine Dragon song is in it, and it's... As if to say, don't worry, it's not gay. To well, <laughs> anyone in the audience who is like, there's too many women in this movie. There's yeah, there's no He's French. Is he gay? There's like, no yeah, there's no campiness allowed in this. And yet the act of a believer sort of uh, kicking in at the end there is camp in and of itself, right? Where it's like you have <laughs> it's campier this than like anything in the movie. Like Penelope Cruz, Judy Dench, Olivia Coleman, like Imagine Dragons comes in. And um but I was I the realization was just like, oh, they're trying to sell this as like cool. They're trying to sell this to I guess maybe the Johnny Depp audience, but it's not like they like put more Johnny Depp into the trailer than was necessary either. You know what I mean? Like I I the the campaign for selling this movie was really muddled. And it ended up making more money than I would have expected, especially given, globally. especially globally, given that it really felt like in the court of public opinion or like the attention economy, it really flopped. Like nobody paid attention to this movie. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody. We'll talk a little bit about the other Fox movies from around this time, but like it really got lost in the conversation that uh, the Greatest Showman uh, sort of you know swept swept it away see this is the thing that's maybe died at the box office and i don't want to linger on it but there is a certain thing for movies released in november and december that Mm. like they have some legs to them if they're you know second or third choice or if they're like Mm. no one wants to all see the same movie and this is the movie that makes grandma and your weird cousin happy when people go to movies together and i think that that's like part of what it's you know u.s box office like tally kept it in there because you're right that yeah. like no one cared about this movie once it opened no one really talked about it or yeah like, you know mentioned liking it you know what i love the notion of talking about going to the movies as a family in the holidays is the everybody goes to the movie theater and then you all break off and see whatever you want at the theater at the multiplex right, right? that's the like the grand vision of a multiplex that isn't playing 24 screenings of Avatar The Way of Water and, like, one screening of Violent Night, and that's your entire multiplex, right? Um, but in the ideal the ideal of a holiday season 24-screen multiplex is you can go there with mom, dad, three kids, uncle, Jerry, and Nana Rose, right? And everybody picks a different... Uncle Jerry is a gay bachelor, and Nana Rose is a, a uncle spry... Uncle going to see She Said for the fourth time. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And Nana Rose is going to see Violent Night because she loves slashers. And um, I'm telling you, but- this is my grandmother, my grandmother who loves the Saw movies. <laughs> like she probably has seen Violent Night. Uh, but like that's the ideal for me, right? Everybody uh, goes and maybe like two people see one movie and like three people go to another one, and and that to me is. That's the America that I want. This is the future liberals want, is that entirely. And the problem right? now is that they have to make the one movie for everybody. Or right. like they make the one movie for mostly everybody and convince the remaining factors that they have to see it. Like, yeah. there's no real Sad. kids movie. Well, I guess there's Puss in Boots this holiday season. Okay, can we talk about for half a it second? Wait, who's your boyfriend? Harvey Guillen's a voice in that movie. I oh, oh, I didn't realize. Um, the interesting, I saw the Puss in Boots trailer uh, before Strange World, and I turned to uh, my friend Joey after after that trailer started, and I go, is this a different animation style? And like, for after like a minute, you're like, yeah, it obviously is. You but like, I haven't... It doesn't have the budget of the original Puss in Boots. I haven't seen the first two Puss in Boots, but like, I know that like, the first two Puss in Boots are Shrek movies, so like, they have the like, the animation style of Shrek, I imagine. And I've seen Wait, the... this isn't the second Puss in Boots, this is the third Puss in Boots movie? Wasn't there a Puss in Boots 2, or am I making up a Puss in Entirely Boots Entirely conceivable, but I do not know. Hold on, I let me, get, let me get on IMDb. I could be wrong. I would just imagine that... Uh, n- no, maybe there is only just the one Puss in Boots movie from 2011. Well, what if this uh, is the fifth Puss in Boots movie? Honestly, it could be. But so, but like, that's the most interesting thing about this new Puss in Boots now is like, they took, they gave it a whole new animation style. I'm like, that's kind of like cool to like change that up in midstream. You don't really ever see that in an animation series. And like, that's kind of cool. I'm not really interested in seeing it in general, but. Um, I don't know. Good for that movie. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, uh, that aside is done. Um, but like, this is a movie who it's like, okay, we've already seen, what were the big, like Thanksgiving and Christmas movies in 2017? Hold please. Like Aquaman. Was that 2017? I thought it was 2018. Um, hold on. But like, you've already seen one or two of those other movies what are we gonna see well we haven't seen murder on the orient express it has a lot of famous people let's just go Wait, see that please hold i will i will come up with this all right so we're saying through thanks from thanksgiving through uh christmas right essentially yeah. okay so we're talking about um well honestly if we're talking about movies that made money uh, Wonder, the Julia Roberts, Jacob Tremblay movie, Wonder, uh, opened in late November. Coco, the Pixar movie Coco, opened yes. in late November. Um, Shape of Water, which was like art house and platformy. Um, Star Wars: The Last Jedi was like the big blockbustery thing that mm-hmm. was happening. Um, which Jumanji? Is it the? The first Jumanji. The first Jumanji, which is actually really good. I really liked that. Um, opens the same weekend as Greatest Showman. And actually, both of those movies ended up making money. <laughs> One of them uh, much more uh, interestingly than the other. Um, and then how wide did All the Money in the World open? I thought that opened wide on Christmas. I think it did. Yeah. So like that's your Christmas. Money, but... That's your Christmas movie. Um, but yeah, so I think if you're t- looking at the big ones, it's Star Wars The Last Jedi, 
Coco. Oh, that was also when Netflix. Um, oh no, I I saw a screening of Bright, a press screening of Bright, in a theater. <laughs> but they were trying to do the thing where like we're gonna we're gonna premiere that on streaming, and it's gonna be the equivalent of the big tentpole blockbuster just on streaming. And they really tried to convince people that Bright was a big deal. I, I mean, remember. Bright was the first like Netflix scare quotes blockbuster that had pulled these huge numbers, but I didn't know anybody who had watched it. Right. Also uh pitch perfect three. There was father figures that Owen Wilson, Ed Helms comedy where um, <laughs> the bad Glenn Close poster. Yes. The bad Glenn Close poster. Uh, 20th century Fox's uh, uh, blue sky studios movie. Ferdinand. Uh, was that year, which ended up getting, I believe, an animated feature nomination. It did, because that was the one I was scrambling to see back when I was a completist. Art House stuff was Shape of Water and I, Tanya and Darkest Hour um, and Roman J. Israel Esquire, rad movie. Great movie. Um, oh, and Justice League was uh, oh. mid-November as well. <laughs> so Justice League was your November tentpole, and then Star Wars. Man, I guess. Uh, Justice League opened the week after Murder on the Orient Express. Murder on the Orient Express opens the same weekend as Daddy's Home 2. And the, uh, I believe, limited release of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry, and LBJ, lest we forget. The Rob (laughs) Reiner-directed LBJ. LBJ, yeah. 2017, the fall of 2017 is so interesting. We've um, talked about it a ton because there's a lot of big, buzzy Oscar movies that flop in 2017. So we've talked about 2017 kind of a lot. Um, but Murder on the Orient Express was, I think, when you greenlight this movie, you want this movie to be a, you want it to play really big during holiday season. You want it to be exactly what we're talking about, which is the whole family can go, um, Oh, and Thor Ragnarok was early November. Sorry, I keep like going through different parts of this uh, calendar. Anyway, um, you want it to be the movie that, right, like you maybe you've seen Thor Ragnarok already. Maybe you've seen um, Justice League and it's Thanksgiving Day weekend and, oh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express has been playing for a couple weeks and you it's still in theaters. to go see Justice League. No, no, no. Ampev really, really can't stand... Uh, uh, Jason Momoa for some reason like she saw the first season only of Game of Thrones and she saw how like weirdly uh, uh, rapey that uh, storyline was crafted and she's like no I'm sorry I can't do it I, computer so, animation so. makes her motion sick so she right. can't see Coco Right, right. So it's like, what's she going to see? And she's obviously a huge fan of Mrs. Henderson Presents. So you're just like, ah, Bev, you know, let's go see your fave, Judy Dench. And Judy Dench, who is in so much of Murder on the Orange, just like wall to wall Dench <laughs> in this movie. She's definitely not in one scene. And then like a couple moments where she's just sitting in a train car as a camera passes by. Like, that's definitely not exactly what happens in Murder on the Orient Express. <sighs> So many wasted. The okay. The epitome. We'll get into the plot description after this. The epitome of my frustration with this remake is, and I guess whatever. Like whether it's a remake of the 1974 movie or just another adaptation of the novel. Like we're splitting hairs. The fact that Penelope Cruz plays essentially, it's a different name, but like essentially the same character that Ingrid Bergman 
won an Oscar for playing mm-hmm. in the original. And yet I defy you to tell me a single like thing that Penelope Cruz does in this movie that is memorable or like that like resonates at all. She again has like two late a scene and a half with Brenna. And like that's basically it. She's barely in this movie. Right. And like she doesn't really interact with the other famous people in this movie. And the whole like, right, the whole movie is waiting for the reveal, and then you the reveal happens, and you see all the connections between the characters. But like none of the characters to to hide that reveal, none of the characters spend hardly any time with each other leading up to that reveal. And it's like, and it's just like, but you cast Oscar winner, international film star, Salma Hayek's best friend in the world, Penelope Cruz, and and, and you put her in this dowdy wig, and it's oh. like if you have. Uh, like one of the greatest living uh, actresses, Penelope Cruz, in a movie. If you have one of the greatest living actresses, Judy Dench, in your movie. Mm. Let them have some fun. If they're not going to be in, inter- if we're not going to get the joy of watching movie stars on screen together, yeah, let them have some fun because the scenes feel so inconsequential when basically Perot is doing all of these interviews and it's like we're getting the story details so it's like you can't cut them from the movie but right. a lot of them are so baseline not that interesting that it's mm-hmm. like you could have cut it from the movie you know yeah. it's like nothing ever feels like it's everything in this movie horrible. feels like it could have been cut except for the conclusion like honestly like this this movie could have been an email is really really like the this movie could have been an imagine dragons pit <laughs> all right let's get into the plot description though um because you know time's a waste in we're talking about the 2017 version of murder on the orient express directed by kenneth branagh written by michael green and of course based on the novel by agatha christie it is starring deep breath kenneth branagh Michelle Pfeiffer, Judy Dench, Penelope Cruz, Daisy Ridley, Leslie Odom Jr., Willem Dafoe, Olivia Coleman, Josh Gad, Derek Jacobi, Tom Bateman, Marwan Kanzari, Lucy Boynton, Manuel Garcia Rulfo, Sergei Polunin, and of course the aforementioned Johnny Depp who gets murdered by everybody, and uh, we're all happier for it. This opened wide on November 10th, 2017. Chris, I'm going to pull out my stopwatch, and I am going to get ready to time you. Are you ready with a plot description for Murder on the Orient Express? Yes. All right, go. Okay, so Hercule Poirot is this, like, really famous uh, French uh, private investigator person. Um, He ends up on a train to the Orient Express from his friend. He's kind of going through an existential crisis about, like, you know, truth and whatever. It's not that important. It's not that well done. Anyway, he meets Ratchet, this man on a plane or not on a plane, on a train, this man who is getting these uh, threatening letters and he's like, will you please be my bodyguard? And he says no, but then in the night there is a train crash and they're kind of derailed. They're stuck in the middle of the mountains and uh, Ratchet is found dead. Poirot gets into action, starts investigating everybody to uh, you know, figure out who killed this guy. He has like a dozen stab wounds. Who went so crazy? Uh, turns out that Ratchet is actually an alias and he is this mob man named John Cassetti who was uh, charged for like kidnapping Ten- seconds a baby turns out at the end of it it's not one murderer everybody on this train killed this guy and stabbed him one time uh and uh rather than uh reveal this uh to that and expose everyone for murdering this man uh poros like no one person might have did it i have no idea who did it and everyone's free 11 seconds over time yeah so 
I'm glad you brought up the what this movie decides is going to be the theme of the film, which is Hercule Poirot is a man who views the world in in black and white terms, right and wrong. There is no in between. He says this quite explicitly, right? Quite explicitly in the at the beginning of the movie, there are there is good and evil. There is truth and lie. There is you know uh, good and bad, and there is no no middle ground. And this movie then decides that it, what it is about is getting Hercule Poirot to a point where something can happen that is so morally gray that it rocks his very foundations. And he has no choice but to do the one thing you thought he could never do, which is not solve a murder uh, correctly and to to lie about uh, who actually killed this man because the truth is so awful and, and the truth would damage so many people who have already been damaged and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, it's all these people who are damaged by the death of this child who were associated to this family or were family members themselves. Cue up Jamie Lee Curtis. Cause this is a movie about trauma, trauma. baby. Um, by the power of Michelle Pfeiffer's wig reveal. Hey, <laughs> okay, that was very, again, something that could have been incredibly campy because it's like, yeah, like that moment needs to be Michelle, not Michelle Pfeiffer, Glenn Close at the end of Dangerous Liaisons. Sure. Shedding but a also mask like to reveal another mask. The wig was face. totally unnecessary. If you knew who this woman was enough to know who she was, her face would be enough. It's Michelle fucking Pfeiffer, first of all. Like, it's not like, oh, she was unrecognizable as Michelle Pfeiffer. It's a blonde wig versus like... Uh, brown hair it's not even like a different hairstyle so right. um, it's one dowdy wig revealed to another wig i mean the first rule of drag is if you take off your wig you have to have another wig underneath but right. i think the second rule is the second wig needs to be better than the first well wig. and that is a rule that many drag queens on drag race in the years since um roxy andrews did that wig on wig on wig reveal have uh uh, not taken heed to when the when the underwig is a lot less impressive than the overwig. Like it's a problem. You know who did probably the best since then was Evie Oddly in All Stars, where she does the wig reveal that it's like, oh, it was a mistake. This is my wig cap. But then, nope, actually, she yeah. told you there was another wig under. It's gotten to not to detour us too much, but like we're really reaching a a point of unsustainability with how we're <laughs> how we're doing this we're like we really do we have any more our wig honestly like yes we're gonna have to like go to pandora to like uh, mine the the undersea for uh, ways that we can get further gooped on uh on wig reveals all right I anyway not support um drilling in whale brains even <laughs> to support the art of drag what kind of fracking is that exactly? That's uh, that's. If we find out that in the future, oh my god, RuPaul is going to be future RuPaul. The yes, whale fracker. It owns a whale farm on Pandora yeah. and revealed in Avatar Four. And Peppermint and Bob the Drag Queen will not talk about it. They refuse to. Uh, <laughs> don't talk about the whale farming on Pandora that Ru is doing. Okay. Um, wait. Back up. Back up. Back up. What was I going to say? Oh, right. So uh, Paro's existential crisis. There's a way to to make that work. And one of the ways I think to make that work is 
one of them is show don't tell this movie does so much of just like telling us of Poirot telling us what the theme is that like it robs us he literally lines up the entire cast in a cave at a table like the fucking last supper and it's just like now i'm going to go down the line and i'm going to tell you each who your character is and at the end i'm going to tell everybody at home the theme of the movie and then i'm going to then tell the police when we make the stop who the the my fake theory about the killer and then i'm going to tell everybody that you know, they've been broken already and then go about your business. And it's so much telling and very little showing. And maybe that's the biggest problem of the movie. Maybe that's sort of where I, where I stand with that. Right. I mean, it's, there is that crunchiness to it thematically, but also because of this, where it's like so demonstrative about giving you what the theme is, it makes you kind of question why this is the most famous of the Agatha Christie uh, mm. Poirot books. Like, yeah. this, it, you know, this one carries at least the most name value, I think, in terms of this franchise, for lack of a better word, if you're talking right. about books. Um, right. Yeah. Did you see Death on the Nile? I did. See, here's the thing about Death on the Nile, and there's going to be a third one coming that, like, there. I think that there, Death on the Nile is a more interesting but significantly worse movie. I think um, it's made, it's the quality of it is worse, but I think it's it's definitely a more interesting way to tell the, like, a more, maybe a more interesting a story. There's correction that happened between yeah. these two movies. I think it's an acknowledgement of what wasn't working yeah. in the first movie, and they bring that to the second one, but the second one is also bad. Yeah. Because, oh, yeah. like, it's definitely campier. It's fun, more fun to watch. Like people are doing bigger performances. Events actually unfold. One thing leads to another, leads to another. It's not like just one thing happens and then we spend the rest of the movie waiting for Poirot to tell us what happened. And I think part of the course correction is like, not that Death on the Nile doesn't have a lot of famous people in it, but it's not, you know, a-list famous people like Michelle Pfeiffer, who was like, we'll, we'll talk about Pfeiffer because like 2017 Pfeiffer is a whole thing. Sure. But like people who are harder to get and like make that your entire cast for right. on the Orient Express. Right. Whereas that's not true of Death on the Nile. And this third one that's coming out, it's like, there's like three maybe top tier names that are involved in it like michelle yo tina fey which is like wait let me bring this up in a movie together is brana directing this one as well yes all right hold on a second i believe that's filming right now hold please i have it pulled up okay so what's give me the cast what's it called Uh, it is called it's an alteration from the original uh Agatha Christie novel. It's going to be called A Haunting in Venice. Based sure. On Halloween Party. Halloween Party, you know, doesn't have the same, you know, <laughs> right. appeal. Right. Obviously, Brana is returning as the mustache. It will have Michelle Yeoh, Tina Fey, Jamie Dornan, and Kelly Riley. Also, Jude Hill from uh, Belfast. From Belfast. Sure, sure, sure. I. <laughs> I like Tina Fey still. I know there was a whole backlash cycle against Tina Fey that like happened for like several years or whatever. I wish people would stop casting her in things where she just doesn't temperamentally fit. Exactly. This is the problem. Like I, <coughs> whatever you think of Tina Fey, it's like as an actress, 
I don't. I'm curious how she's going to be a fit for an Agatha Christie movie. Like I like in Death on the Nile. So one of the like you cast French and Saunders right in Death on the Nile. You cast Don French and Jennifer Saunders, who are comedians, who are you know a little bit out of place, but also like and they don't get to be funny in that movie. <laughs> but like they're not a like there's something about casting an American comedian or comedic uh, actress, which feels just a little less, I don't know, maybe I'm like exoticizing the British Isles or whatever, (laughs) but like, it's just flatter. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's less interesting to cast Tina Fey than it would be to cast, um, oh, what's her name from Spy, who I love? Um, Oh um, God, you asked me too fast, because yes, I do love her. Or uh, not even her, but like a Sharon Horgan. Like, oh my Sharon Horgan would be super fun in a movie like this actually as she is in in uh, Game Night. Um what is her name? Um spy, hold on. Apologies to uh, uh, uh to this uh, woman. Miranda who, Hart, Queen Miranda Hart. I knew it was something Hart, Miranda Hart. Yeah, like Miranda Hart would rule in a movie in in a fun murder mystery movie. Like cast her in your next I mean, Knives Out sequel. Burn. Get her to stop doing uh, Australian tourism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but this is the one of the things uh, in the last week we've gone through a big social media cycle of who would you cast in the new Knives Out? Who would you cast in the new White Lotus? And um, that's fun because those franchises both have big expansive casts that give actors and actresses a lot to do, a lot of like fun, interesting things to do, even if the roles are small. And it really shows you how much we want to let these actors and actresses we love have fun in a movie. And like these, the Branna Poirot movies are not exactly what I would think of as where you would go to for fun, but like there are ways that they could be more fun and <laughs> casting no them. having fun in Murder on the Orient. No, it's so dour. Okay, here's. Here's my question to you with Murder on the Orient Express, though. And I say this again, saying I haven't seen the 1974 one. I wanted to have time to see it before we did this episode, and I just didn't. Uh, it's the holidays, everybody. Uh, uh, we're, <laughs> we're very busy. Um, with the story that Murder on the Orient Express tells, that it ultimately is about a bunch of people who were so rocked by the death of this ch- this baby – uh, in their lives, that they all were motivated to murder. Is a, is there a way to tell that story fun? I mean, it's not about the content. It's about the tone. It's about, like, I don't know, because the original, like, people, I think, thought was fun. Like, there's an right. That's my impression. That doesn't feel right. is in this one, you know, in terms of, like, design, like... The, it, this movie does feel somewhat like corners are cut aside from, you know, performers not being on set together at the same time. Like, sure. You know, it, it, I don't know. There, I feel like, obviously, the movie from the 1970s, which was successful with Oscar, got Bergman um, her second Oscar or her third? Her third. So we'll talk third. about that in a second. Um <laughs> Oh, we'll talk, let's that, talk about it right now. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think the that movie's 
success with Oscar is part of why we can have this conversation about this movie. Mm-hmm. It's also the presence of everybody else, but like it's also the type of movie that's like this could very easily be a uh, production design, could very easily be a costume design nominee, and it's like I think on those terms, it's not very satisfying either. It's not yeah. very like you know yeah. campy, splashy, ornate fun. Either. So yeah, the fact that this is a remake of. Uh, 1974's Murder on the Orient Express, I think, is probably the primary reason why this movie had Oscar buzz. That was a Sidney Lumet movie. Sidney Lumet, at this point, uh, by 1974, had been nominated for Best Director for tr- 12 Angry Men, and he was about to enter in a very sort of, like, Oscar-welcoming period, right? Where, like, Dog Day Afternoon and Network were upcoming uh, he would be nominated for Best Director again for The Verdict. He would receive an honorary Oscar in 2004. So, like, this this is in the thick of a very successful period for Sidney Lumet. This film, uh, in and of itself, is very star-studded. I think that's why you go in with the expectation of you're going to cast a remake of Murder on the Orient Express as starry as possible. The original uh, starred Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, Sean Connery, John Gielgud, uh, Vanessa Redgrave is in that movie. Michael York, Jacqueline Bissett, Anthony Perkins. Like, it's a really, really starry movie. It gets ultimately nominated for six Academy Awards. Uh, Finney, Albert Finney, uh, for Best Actor, uh, as Poirot. Um, Ingrid Bergman, as we said, wins Best Supporting Actress. Put a pin in that. I want to talk about that a little bit more. <laughs> Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay nomination, Cinematography nomination, Costume Design, Dramatic Score. It wins for Ingrid Bergman. It was, I believe, a bit of a surprise that she won, at least if you go by her speech. So she's this is her third Oscar. She had won Best Actress for 1944's Gaslight and then again in 56 for Anastasia. I don't believe she had been nominated since... 56. I think this, I think Murder on the Orient Express is perhaps her first nomination in a while, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Wins for playing the role of the former, essentially the former nanny, I guess, right? For the, for the baby. And that's, uh, yes. Okay. So she wins. If you watch the clip, I watched it yesterday. This is, by the way, Six years removed from announcing the best actress tie in uh, 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 between Streisand and Hepburn, which is a clip mm-hmm. I've seen eight billion times, just to sort of orient you uh, in Oscar history. Uh, so she goes up there. First of all, wait, I want. I wrote down my favorite quote ever. One of my. It's up there with what a thrill. She says, "It's always very nice to get an Oscar." <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing she says, and like she says it in such a like I don't like. I don't think she thinks she's making a joke and the audience laughs and she sort of like is like, oh, right. That's like, yes. Thank you very much indeed. It's always very nice to get an Oscar. But in the past. Um, (laughs) But then she immediately uh, starts talking about she was up against Valentina Corteza for. Who's probably second place. Right. Uh, uh, It seems like the one everybody thought was going to win for Truffaut's uh, Day for Night. And. Bergman is talking about how, well, it's so strange because last year, Day for Night won, she said Day for Night won Best Picture. She meant Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, it was a City of God situation where Day for Night mm-hmm. was uh, one foreign language film the year before. And then the year after, when it released in the States, it gets like three Oscar nominations. It was like, I think it got 
director, supporting actress, and something else, maybe screenplay. Um, um, I think there were also some of the cra- some craft nominations for that movie, if I remember correctly. But Valentina Cortez had already won the BAFTA for it, right? Um, and then the next year, um, Bergman would win BAFTA in the same category. Yeah. Valentina Cortez won New York Critics. She won National Society of Film Critics. She yeah. was probably the odds-on favorite to win. So, uh, and Bergman's basically sort of like playing essentially like an Oscar columnist, sort of like going about this, she's just like, it's so strange that like the movie won last year and you were so great and wonderful and I don't like that we were up against each other and we're rivals. It's so ironic that this year she's nominated when the picture won last year I don't quite understand that, but here I am and I'm her rival and I don't like it at all. Please forgive me, Valentina I didn't mean to (laughs) I don't understand how this works that the movie was nominated last year and now you're here nominated this year. And I don't like, she's just like, I don't understand it, but I, I, I really don't like that we were rivals and she's being very lighthearted about this. But the last thing she says is, um, forgive me, Valentina. I didn't mean to. And then, uh, and that's, then she sort of walks out and this is very charming speech. Uh, and Valentina Corteza at this point is in the audience, like beaming, just like wonderfully happy for Ingrid Bergman. And like, she's not taking it hard or anything like this. And it's, it's, it's kind of a wonderful moment. Go check it out uh, if you uh, I will want put it to on, the top on YouTube. Page. Yes. My name is Hercule Poirot, and I'm probably the greatest detective in the world. Oh, ho, ho, Chris, we must stop the investigation into the murder on the Orient Express. We have arrived at our layover destination. <laughs> That's right. Our layover destination in Vulture Do you call it Movie a layover when it's a train? Just, no. What do they call it? I mean, it technically is a layover. Stopover? Maybe stopover. I don't know. Um, if for my purposes, it's we arrive to Albany early and we're not leaving for another hour and a half. It's basically <laughs> so you can step off the train and have a cigarette, but be back on the train because it will leave without you. Um, that's what I call it. So, yes. Um, Movie Fantasy League update for the week of uh, first week of the new year. Well, happy new year to all of our listeners. And we are ready to hit the ground running with a couple months sprint of Movie Fantasy League up through the Oscars. So, very exciting. We are awaiting January 2nd's um, Rotten Tomatoes lockdown, where all of the Rotten (laughs) Tomato scores for all of the movies will become officially... uh, ensconced in amber and and forever permanent but we don't know we're not there yet we're recording this on new year's eve so we don't want to talk about that quite yet but in i imagine in the newsletter that should be arriving in your inboxes on the third that i will have uh given an update on the rotten tomato scores because that'll be the next big uh points accruation surge accrual accrual I think. Um, <laughs> besides the Avatar, uh, the continuing uh, incoming Avatar box office points. But for now, Chris, I want to talk about flops. We're going to end end the year talking about flops. Not just box office flops, right. not just critical flops, but specifically uh, flops in this game. Flops in this game. You did bring up <clears throat> the critical point, though, and to my great shame, I did not catch... I knew the quote was from something, but I did not know it was from... <laughs> Off the top of my head, I couldn't place Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is too When, bad. in texting, we, uh, you told me that you sent an email with all the flops, and I said, is it just a Google spreadsheet uh, that just says I am the Earth Mother and you are all flops? 
You brought up the pertinent point, though. Uh, you said that Martha would get ratioed in twenty twenty two. Yeah, on Twitter, Martha would get ratioed. Would okay. Here's my question, though: Is would the degree to which Martha would get ratioed outweigh the degree to which she would have like legions of gay fans just sort of death dropping in front of her to save her from from all harm? I mean, people might hate her fans more than they hate her is part of the problem. Or would she well, be like Ellen, where it's like, oh, Martha's mean. Like, Martha's <laughs> way too mean. We can't support this. I don't know. I don't know. But Martha doesn't pretend to be nice. I think that was Ellen's downfall. Right. She Martha Martha nice. would get ratioed for not being nice. But Martha, Martha would be the type of person that gets ratioed and, like, hardcore ratioed, even though, like, what they said wasn't necessarily, like, bad. Who's afraid, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf if it was released now? Martha would get the Lydia Tar is real uh, treatment, where <laughs> it'd just be like, Martha, Martha's a real person. Uh, and Edward Albee is rolling in his grave. <laughs> um. I mean, the same degree of misinterpretation of like what what Tar is saying about the the canceling of Lydia Tar would I imagine uh, be the same, a, a similar treatment to a modern-day release of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Thank God that thing came out when it came out. <sighs> anyway, flops. Anyway, flops. All right. So, yes. So let's talk about the flops in the movie Fantasy League. These are these are movies that we talked the last time about good value picks. These would be like the opposite, is you paid a little bit of, of price tag for these, and they have not delivered what you want them to deliver. Top of that list, for me is well at the very most let's start with the most expensive so for twenty dollars you could have picked up ruben ostlin's triangle of sadness which has thus far only accrued 35 points i think for all of these i want to just sort of quickly and we don't want to take up too much time because we want to get back to the investigation the investigation is currently happening on the orient express (laughs) um what what are the chances that as we move into Guild season and like BAFTA season and finally Oscar, uh, the Oscar nominations and awards, what are the chances that something like Triangle of Sadness is able to rebound and recoup some of these points that you paid $20 to get? I think it's as likely to rebound as it isn't. Like we were having yeah. this conversation the other day that yeah. it's like... This movie could suddenly have like four or five Oscar nominations after I still we're, think like, the outside the movie was dead. I still think the outside shot at picture and director nominations exists, but it's like that window seems to be closing quickly. Right. right. As other, you know, challengers seem to solidify right. what they're doing. Yeah. Like almost like I almost feel like and this isn't gonna happen, but maybe it's just because I just watched it yesterday. But like I almost feel like EO has more of a uh, momentum in the among the like foreign language films. If we feel right. like there's a quote unquote slot, a foreign language slot in best director, which that's a movie that a lot of people respond to. A lot of people respond to. Janice did a great job with Drive My Car just last year. I'm saying, as as we were all saying that Janice couldn't do an Oscar campaign, they you know they proved us wrong. They did. Um. So yeah, I don't know about Triangle of Sadness. I still feel. I still like this movie and i kind of like it more and more the more i sort of observe conversations about it even among people who don't like it i sort of mm-hmm. tend to be coming to its defense so well, we'll see about trying to i think it, there's a been somewhat of a cold uh critical response in the states at least in terms yeah. of the 
critics that don't like it really, really don't like it. Yeah. And, you know, this is maybe why it's not doing so well in this game right now is because, you know, sure. it doesn't have any critics' prices, basically, and it probably won't. Well, and so and I also want to clarify that when I say foreign language thought, I know that Triangle of Sadness is not a foreign language film, but it is from Ruben Ostland, who I feel like is sort of slotted into that foreign language film director. A lot of people, you know when, I mean? they've, when they've talked about the race and predictions and stuff, have treated it like it is occupying that space. Yeah. Um, sorry, Mike. My- Gmail just re- uh, uh, refreshed itself, so now I have to find that email again that I sent you. Um, okay, so next I want to talk about an, an actual foreign language film, um, at least in its majority, which is Bardo. What's the subtitle of Bardo? I never remember to put it in. Uh, uh, something uh, uh, half-truths? Something about uh, an uncomfortable assortment of half-truths? What is it called? Hold on. When the Pawn goes... <laughs> False um, Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a movie I liked... I think we talked about this a little bit. A movie I liked better than I expected to. I like Bardo quite a bit. It was a $15 buy, because I think when we were... When I was making the, the point valuations, the dollar valuations for this, it was still, like... Netflix has got to have something for a number one contender, and that was the one that had the most sort of sight unseen potential. It has thus far not been realized. Off of a five, off a fifteen dollar buy, it's only gotten you ten points thus far. However, it did make the short list for best international feature. And do we feel like as we move into guilds and BAFTA and Oscar that uh, the the Inyaritu uh, will will bounce back. The Oscars do I, love them some Inyaritu. I mean, this movie is very quiet right now, even though it just dropped on Netflix. I mean, I think from the very beginning when there was, you know, it's kind of harshly negative critical response immediately when it was premiering at festivals, the industry was very quick to uh, get behind supporting this movie, Um, Mm -hmm. or at least a few people very visibly online were doing so, but then anecdotally, the type of things you hear is that, like, festival goers weren't liking it, but people from the industry that were attending and seeing the movie did. I mean, much like Triangle yeah, it could suddenly have five Oscar nominations on nomination morning. It had a similar theatrical run as Glass Onion did back in November, earlier Mm -hmm. November, and nobody was talking about it then. Like, it does feel like at some point people have to start talking about this movie. And thus far, that conversation hasn't happened yet, really. And it's going to have to at some point if it's going to end up uh, getting nominations. So maybe Bardo will just be the one where constantly it's that Simpsons episode where it's just a little airborne, it's still good, it's still good, like that kind of thing. (laughs) And eventually Bardo's going to... Uh, uh, land in the river or something. I don't know. Finish that. Uh, <laughs> listeners can finish that uh, metaphor for me. Um, a f- handful of the eight dollar values that uh, that were available in the fantasy league: the sun, white noise, and empire of light. Uh, the sun has gotten fifteen points thus far. White noise twenty. Empire of light twenty five. Do we feel like? To what degree are those movies dead in the water, a little alive, um, you know, 
What? What? Where do we in feel in terms like about of this, this game? Th- those are your points, guys. That's that's what you're getting. Probably. Do you not feel like Olivia Coleman is still in the Best Actress race? Uh, very possibly. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like she's getting out there more than she does not like to do campaign stuff. Yeah. Um, for movies or for award season, but like, I think because this movie is struggling financially, she's kind of getting out there to support and, it, or and she seems like she's doing much more for it. And she's but really all that movie has to hold on to at this point. So I could see them being like, "Please, <laughs> please, God, Olivia." Of people that like that movie. I yes. Mean, we oh yeah. Suddenly hear from people attending, you know, luncheons and such that you know. Shout out to Richard Lawson, who has made a very good case for that movie for being good, even though this is a movie that I did not latch on to. But like, I always like when there when movies have these really good faith and well articulated defenses. It's always a much more interesting yeah. uh, landscape for that. Uh, I've talked about White Noise, where I just don't see a world in which that movie connects with Oscar voters beyond possibly song. I still feel like that LCD sound system song is not only a good song but like so clearly the the energy wavelength highlight of that movie if people make mm-hmm. it to the end of that movie um <laughs> which is maybe a question especially because it's on Netflix and it is very easy to not make it to the end of movies when they are on Netflix but if you make it to the end of white noise you will get the best part of white noise which is uh the supermarket dance sequence um so i feel like but i feel like that's the ceiling on white noise right like it's yeah one nomination at best. And then the sun I do feel like is dead. We've talked about the best actor race being shallow, but like it's filled in a little bit since we've talked about it that way. And there are plenty of options now I feel like that are ahead of Hugh Jackman. If Hugh Jackman ends up getting a best actor nomination for the sun, I think I and a lot of people will probably be very upset because somebody a lot more deserving now, all of a sudden, I feel like Paul Mescal is a possibility. So now, if Hugh, like several months ago, if you had said that Hugh Jackman's going to get nominated and Paul Mescal has, wouldn't, I'd be like, yeah, probably. <laughs> and now I'm like, God damn it, if that happens. And even if it, even if it's not Paul Mescal, it's like, it's Jeremy. We're Pope. talking about it's, who would get the fifth slot. There yeah. would be a lot more interesting possibilities. I think even like back to Bardo, Daniel Jimenez. Co- Cacho could be like a cool surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, What's so the yeah, current? It's like a not good performance or a not strong performance in, in a movie a really nobody bad likes. Movie that no one nobody see likes that movie. About. Nobody. I've seen zero people make a case for the sun, and usually you will find people who will make a case for anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I'm trying to look and see who's being so like the. Colin Farrell, Brendan Fraser, Austin Butler are like the ones that are sort of locked in. Bill Nye is looking pretty good. Um, I would buy, God, it would be such a chaos agent. But like at this point, I'm starting to feel like Tom Cruise for Top Gun Maverick is not the most out there notion that that could happen. Like there's so right. much support for that movie as a Best Picture nominee. Um, but like I said, Paul Mescal's out there after Sun's doing so well in the precursors. Um, I'm still going to be riding for Jeremy Pope. So, yeah, maybe it is still kind of a shallow pool, and maybe Hugh Jackman has a better chance than I think, but, like, oh, it's going to make me mad if that happens. The next two that we have on our list are definitely movies that points will begin to roll in, I think. Okay. Hit me with them. 
Uh, the first is Corsage, which is a $5 buy. Only has five points so far. Ultimately not surprising to me that it's not, like, you know, racking up critics' prizes for international feature or foreign language film prizes. Do you it's feel like now that, like... It's a divisive movie, but I think is safe to be nominated for Oscar. In what? In foreign language? In, in costume? international feature. In international yeah. feature. And I think... It made the shortlist. I think a movie that is about as much about costumes as Corsage is, that it does have an outside shot at a nomination for costumes... I think people are already familiar with Vicky Creeps in the industry. Yeah. So I could see it getting a couple of nominations. It's still probably not going to get you a ton of points, but off of a $5 bet, if it even gets you, like, if you end up this end the season with, like, 50 points off of Corsage, that's probably a good, you know, a good bet for that. And then, yeah, Wendell and Wilde in animation. I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know if it's going to end up sneaking in on that five. It's going to get nominated, you of think course. So? You think yeah. so? Nobody's yeah, I talking mean, about it. The, <laughs> they're not going to nominate, like, Lightyear. Well, like, I want to get to that in a second. I don't know if I would be so declarative about that. Pixar is I, very... Looms large, I will say. I mean, that's true, but nobody liked that movie. People don't remember that that movie happened. Like, And yet... You think that they would go for a, they would go for the one of the worst Pixar movies over a Henry Selleck bespoke weirdo movie? It wouldn't shock me. Okay, it wouldn't shock me. I'm not saying I would like it, but it wouldn't. I mean, shock Henry me. Selleck should be walking away, right? With and his that's the thing Oscar is like this year, and, and why isn't he? And, yeah, that's the thing. I think there's a reason why he's not, and I think it's because. That is a movie that is, I think... Because Netflix is dumping it for Pinocchio. Yeah. A movie that is no less weird, by the way. Right! I like Pinocchio, but, like, its its qualities, its positive qualities are kind of similar to the positive qualities of Wendell and Wilde. And if those two movies would be your one and two in the animation race, I would love it. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. Before we go, there are a handful of movies that currently, as we are recording this, have zero points. They're all going to end up getting points by the time the Rotten Tomato scores kick in, because everything will have gotten points by then. But thus far, in the uh, Critics Awards precursor season, zero points for Emancipation, I Want to Dance with Somebody, Lightyear, we just mentioned, and The Northman. Are any of those waiting in the wings to take a late run at awards season? I mean, Emancipation made the makeup shortlist. Would not be surprised if that becomes a nominee because of that. Um, I don't see it for the other movies. Um, The Northman has, like, some avenues that you really kind of wish that it would have, you know, gotten a hold on. Original score, production does. Well, and The Lighthouse did get the cinematography nomination a few years ago. So, like you could see a world in which that could repeat and yet it was released so early in the year and people really are just not talking about it in a way that's like a little vexing because like even if you feel like the movie is a little off-putting or a little too much and it doesn't quite work for you the crafts are so apparent in that movie Mm -hmm. right um i don't know and then I want to dance with somebody, which was a giant question mark kind of looming at the end of the season. 
and like people had seen it, but like you hadn't really heard anything about it, and now it's basically kind of dead in the water. I want to dance with somebody is the kind of movie that needed a groundswell of popular support, and right now the current box office situation is not conducive to a movie of that scope and size getting popular support. And I don't even, I haven't seen it yet. So I can't even say it's a bummer. Like I've heard, I've heard mixed things about it, but like I've heard some people being like, Oh, that's a better movie than I was anticipating. But even I've also heard people say that's a worse movie than I see. It's running the gamut, kind of like a spectrum of it's running the gamut. But I just, in general, it's a little bit of a bummer that 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 avenue isn't available because like that avenue has served us well in the past of like smaller movies that have. It's also given us Bohemian Rhapsody. So like I'm not saying it's a great avenue. I'm not saying that you know (laughs) we should invest public funding and paving that avenue. But um, also, I think in terms of. Uh, an award season with Elvis doing as well mm, as it is. Yeah. That Elvis it is makes it harder Rhapsody. for this movie. Yeah. And a better version of it for sure. All right. Uh, well, we've, we've monopolized people's time long enough. We've given um, uh, Hercule Poirot plenty of time to ruminate on his theories uh, in seclusion while we've uh, taken this intermission. But uh, we hope you're enjoying the Vulture Movie Fantasy League. Like I said, with the new year, we're hitting the ground running. We've got uh, Rotten Tomatoes points. We've got the Golden Globes right around the corner. The Golden Globe Awards will be uh, here before you know it. And then the guilds will start to have their say. And round and round we go. So enjoy. Oh, I should say, I always forget to do this. <laughs> go to moviegame.vulture.com to check to get a link to the landing page where you can check out scores and point values and what's coming up next. And you can see where your team ranks, do a little control F search on your team's name, and you can find out where it is on the list. I am currently riding fifth place among vulture staff. So, uh, uh, watch out, uh, number one, Nate Jones. We see you up there at the top of that vulture uh, staff chart. And, uh, I'm coming for you. So we'll uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. So uh, all that to say, and of course, like this is one of like Albert Finney's kind of signature roles playing Poirot in this movie. So like there's this movie is remembered very fondly. Uh, It feels like a movie that like would be on cable basic cable a lot on like amc or whatever tcm and just a very popular crowd pleaser kind of a movie and nominated a bunch in 1974 which is like a pretty great year for oscars that's the year where like the godfather and chinatown and the conversation part two godfather part two right and chinatown and the conversation and Alice doesn't live here anymore and uh, just a really great Oscar year for that. So like that's where the pedigree for then a remake comes along and you're just like, well, that movie did so well. And obviously remakes aren't exactly like slam dunks with Oscars, but I think by 2017, certainly the stigma of, um, you know, that this movie is going to just compare poorly to the original and it won't have a shot um, isn't really there anymore. And Branna, of course, still has the shine of pedigree. He's, you know, by 2017, he was a five-time Oscar nominee. Uh, Right now, uh, after Belfast, he's an eight-time Oscar nominee. 
in seven categories. That's the other thing, is I think the thing about Branagh with the Oscars is they've nominated him kind of everywhere. Director, both screenplay categories, supporting actor, lead actor, short film. Like, he's gotten <laughs> nominations everywhere um, and has won just the one. Send him that... over to Weta Digital and he'll be nominated <laughs> for Best Visual Effects. Right, right, right. Was... um. Was Belfast his first ever win, or did he win for yes. something for Henry V? Yes, it was, because um, that's part of the reason that, like, helped him win, was that right. he had never won. He had never won been, before. Like, you know, so honored across multiple categories and mm-hmm. across several decades. Yeah, and, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's obviously, and then, of course, you gather together a cast full of... Oscar winners and nominees. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer was a three. It's still weird that Michelle Pfeiffer is only a three-time Oscar nominee. Like it feels well, like she should have had that many she's more. nominated for. On well, top it, of it, like it's mostly I, Love I really, Field. Really, a lot one. of that has to do with the Love Field nomination. Which, yes. like Love Field, getting nominated for Love Field. I would be so curious to go back in a time machine or like somehow dredge up, you know, whatever punditry was happening then in. that early in the 90s because like it's the same year as batman returns correct which they were absolutely never going to nominate her for that she might be today but like definitely not absolutely not gonna happen i mean dangerous liaison i think she's incredible in but like it's not really one we necessarily talk about when we talk about her so it's like her good nomination is fabulous baker boys but dangerous liaisons is the same year as married to the mob so it's almost like similar to that right we're going to nominate you in this movie we're already nominating in a bunch of categories anyway in a costume drama rather than a comedy a sort of contemporary comedy even though that's where stanton that's nominated for married to the mob dean stockwell it's the other dean Dean. stockwell and i think he had like not really received any awards attention for that movie before the oscar nomination if i remember correctly that could be true um but uh pfeiffer i think was definitely in the best actress conversation that year and then she ends up getting the supporting nomination for dangerous liaisons and then the very next year it feels like a momentum thing, right? Where Fabulous Baker mm-hmm. Boys comes out. She gets tremendous reviews. She's great in that movie. She Incredible. comes very close. I don't know how close she came to Tandy, because I imagine if they loved Driving Miss Daisy enough to give it Best Picture, I imagine Jessica Tandy was decently well ahead of the pack in Best Actress. Right. But like Pfeiffer's definitely second place, you would imagine, for Fabulous Baker Boys. She wins the Golden Globe. Um, and... It feels like the momentum of 88 into 89 for Pfeiffer is so strong that it's going to carry her through all of the 90s. And she gets, like you said, just the one nomination for Love Field. And She's then, a horrible movie. <laughs> I've still never and seen she's it. She's not good in it either. I, that's the one where she plays – is she a widow uh, uh, in Dallas around the time of the Kennedy assassination? Is that the deal? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she falls in love with um, – with President Palmer from 24, Dennis. This Hayes is going to sound reductive, but like it's when you watch it, it's like, yeah, it, it was Green Book before Green Book. It's, oh, interesting. It's a lot of that. It's not great. <laughs> We've talked about Pfeiffer before, but I want to just talk about her in the 90s, though, because like after that movie, it's a lot of movies that like, well, there's definitely a handful of 
could have had nominations. Age of Innocence is probably the big one where she's the lead actress in Age of Innocence and uh, the nomination ends up going to supporting actress uh, Winona Ryder. She's in a Mike Nichols movie, but it's Wolf, right? She's in... <laughs> um, She's in A Thousand Acres, which we've talked about on this podcast. We've She's in Jillian. We've done a ton of Pfeiffer movies because I think after that uh, Married to the Mob, Dangerous Liaisons, Baker Boys thing, she just gets Oscar buzz in most of the things she does. She's in, um, you know, box office, like movies that were more box office plays like Dangerous Minds and, and Up Close and Personal and things like that. But like she's in... Uh, that uh, 1999 Midsummer Night's Dream, which like you could see a world in which that like Shakespeare adaptations used to be a lot more popular with Oscar, right? So like you mm-hmm. could see a world where that gets her a nomination. I am Sam gets nominations for everybody but her. Essentially, Dakota Fanning gets the SAG nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Penn gets the Oscar nomination, and Pfeiffer's like the other one. Um. We've done White Oleander on here where she comes very close, I would imagine, to an Oscar nomination. Doesn't get it. She's in a Rob Reiner movie, but it's the story of us. You know what I mean? It's just like once again. Um, she's in an Oprah uh, Oprah book club movie like The Deep End of the Ocean, which we really got to do at some point. We got to do The Deep yeah, End yeah, of the yeah, Ocean. Yeah, 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 um, But so it's just surprising that like Love Field is her, still her most recent Oscar nomination. And – it's, I thought you were going to keep going and you'd be like, she's in an Aronofsky movie, but it's Mother. Well, <laughs> she should have been. Not, we, we, we talked we've talked about, about it a lot. We've talked about it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she is Mother uh, in many ways. Um, even down it's, to like. It's giving potential Mother. A couple years ago, she's in French Exit, right? Where like, I think a lot of people talked themselves into, including maybe briefly me, talked themselves into the idea that she might get a Best Actress nomination out of that. I think my reasoning was it's a pandemic year. Anything could happen, even though right. people really did not care for that movie. I liked it better than I think most people. Um, but it was just like, uh, it was very much like a movie that kind of repelled a lot of people, uh, uh, vibes wise. So we're here, we're with Michelle Pfeiffer, sort of where we were the last time we talked about her on this podcast, which is it's maybe never going to happen for her. And that's a bummer. If that's the case. So she doesn't work that much. It's unfortunate that, you know, some of these roles that she's great in, like Mother and French Exit, are just like they don't pay off. It's usually in the I mean, like, she's such a we've talked about her before, but like again, she's such an idiosyncratic performer that Mm -hmm. like it's hard to just shove her into a box. And like Orient Express is a movie that I think kind of just shoves her into a box or just well, asks her please show up and look fabulous in this dress and wig and- i will say if if you were to single out one performer from this movie to push for an award she would be the one i think she yeah, gives she's the best performance in the she's the best she performance the in the movie too. she has she gets the biggest signature scene i think for as sort of hamstrung as that scene in the cave is she sells real genuine emotion and devastation. Like she, she's the, yeah. the whole thing leads up to the, you know, I died when uh, Daisy died or whatever. And that's a tough line to sell because it's so melodramatic, but like she makes you believe it. And ultimately nobody from this movie was ever going to really get nominated. Once people saw it, once you saw it, you were just like, yeah, but she would have been the one she would have, if they had, 
tried for a it's surprising and not surprising at the same time that she's in two movies where she's the best part of murder on the orient express and she certainly was the most credible case for an oscar nomination from mother given i think people were a little horrified by uh the jennifer lawrence performance um and yet realistically neither one of those things was going to happen which is too bad right it's too bad um all right let's get into the rest of the cast penelope cruz we talked about she's in the for all intents and purposes the ingrid bergman role so that was where my expectations were that like oh penelope cruz I think a lot of people were feeling the same way too she's a three-time oscar nominee by the time of this movie then she's gotten her fourth since then for parallel mothers um but she had won an Oscar, obviously, for Vicky Cristina Barcelona. And you figure she had already a little bit been in this similar situation where, oh, her role in Nine is the one that got the Tony Award attention, right? Where mm-hmm. she played the, is it the Jane Krakowski role? And Jane Krakowski had been nominated for a Tony? Or had she Jane won Jane Krakowski won the Tony. This she is, in Tony. that revival, this is when she comes from the rafters hanging from a sheet and then when she ends the number in that giant you know uh high note that she ends it with that's also supposed to be an orgasm she because i saw this production it was fuck one of the most fucking insane things i've ever seen in my life it's not like she has a harness strapping her to a wire in case she falls right she falls she's probably dead she's on a curtain right in this like swooping sheet backwards and it pulls her like head facing the ground up into the rafters of the theater yeah it was crazy she won tony for it uh (laughs) that's who that's who uh uh, penelope cruz gets to play in rob marshall's uh nine right and then she takes that to an oscar nomination you know what i mean so it's like you could track similarly onto expectations for murder on the orient express but obviously as i mentioned she gets less than nothing to do in this movie she's really indicative of what's wrong with uh, this adaptation similarly judy dench who at this point is a seven-time oscar nominee and also an oscar winner couldn't be more pedigreed going into this movie and again she goes in and she gets a scene and a half of stuff to do and she's just hiding out in her like sidecar or she's whatever just, right chilling with olivia coleman which you know that's nice work if you can get it there too um the rest of the cast i think is interesting in terms of what's going on in their careers at that time right we're like willem dafoe is in this movie he's nominated for the florida project that same year leslie odom jr is in this movie he had just won the tony award for hamilton the year before Daisy Ridley is in this movie, like, at the same time that Star Wars The Last Jedi. Like, that movie opens five mm-hmm. weeks after uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Olivia Coleman is a year removed. She's This is a year before she stars in The Favorite uh, and ends up surprisingly winning the Oscar there. So, like, they're all sort of having a moment in their careers at this time. And this movie is this kind of like sort of nothing now on their resume on the road from like one big signpost to the other at this point, right? This is Leslie Odom Jr.'s movie in between his Tony Award and his Oscar nomination, right? This is basically the movie Daisy Ridley made when she was taking a break from being in Star Wars movies. 
I remember well, the f- and because you don't really get any of these stars together, even just not like the mega stars at that time. No offense, I wouldn't consider like Daisy Ridley a mega star on the way of right. like you know. But yet she would have been the one who has been seen by the most audience members, probably than a lot of these people. You know what I mean? But like because like they're not really performing together in this movie there's not going to be any like fun stories there's not going to be any dishy gossipy or right. like you know goofy stories that come out of this movie right right so it's like when are we gonna have much callbacks to this movie? right so all of these people play characters who have some sort of connection to this baby daisy who was killed um or connections to her parents or connections to the woman who was accused falsely accused of uh killing this kid right so like everybody's got some sort of a connection to this case and we find that out by the end and we find that out as we said by purely exposition so it's a bummer (laughs) it's a real bummer this movie every time like i had the same feeling watching it this time than i did the last time which is how do you drop this ball like you have so much talent on your hands, you have so much to work with, and it's just such a nothing. Mm-hmm. It's a bummer. The other thing I wanted to talk about, you always know more about this than I do. When I saw <laughs> when this movie started and we got the 20th Century Fox fanfare, first of all, it struck me that like we we don't get that anymore. Like it's you know, 20th I mean, Studios. you get it in Avatar, right? Not the same way. There's the there's it's not the same. Like, I was actually shocked that it what there wasn't a Disney logo in front of Avatar. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of the timeline, though, this is a year out from the like actual the actual acquisition. You know? But they had announced they announced their plans to acquire Fox. Right. Only a few weeks after this, uh, after this movie comes out, after Murder this on the wasn't Express. exactly a booger fall for Fox, too. Like, right? They have some things that don't work, like the Mountain Between Us, Fuck Mountain, which we <laughs> right. really have to do that movie. We do. Um, Logan and the Greatest Showman. At that point, with the Greatest Showman, like it was considered a failure at first. Ends up making a crazy amount of money, but like I think that was basically the last you know, kind of bastion for Fox in terms of success. It's interesting. Logan is such an overachiever with Oscar, right? It ends up getting uh, a lot more just genuine, genuine respect. It gets a screenplay nomination. And then Greatest Showman is an overachiever box office wise. And probably close to winning. It was probably maybe second place for that original song Oscar. There's they also have the post, which like underachiever. Underachiever, I would say, yeah. for the post. Yeah. Um yeah, because it probably could have made more money at the box office. It only gets the I mean, it gets best picture and best actress, but like But that's it. When people first saw it, they were like, it's over and done. This is, you know, the best picture winner. I am people. I remember I walked out of that and I was just like, at this moment, like at this time when like the the best picture race was so much in flux when, you know, because that was the year of Shape of Water. And I think a lot of us were sort of waiting for the thing that was going to beat the Shape of Water. Right. Um, but like, I think we were waiting for like, what's the movie that's going to finally overtake the shape of water? Because we didn't really for a while there 
it took us a while to sort of get used to the idea that like the shape of water was going to win. And even up until Oscar night, I remember a lot of people were pick were predicting a split between shape of water and something else in best director. I think we right. couldn't really agree on what that other something else was going to be. Um, but yeah, I remember watching the post and being like, he did it. Spielberg did it. He's going <laughs> to, he's going to take it by storm. And, and here we are again, potentially. Um, it keeps happening, Chris. It keeps happening. At this point, I almost enjoy the idea that I can be an iconoclast by being a fan of the most prolific and <laughs> beloved filmmaker in, in all of cinema at this point, where it, like it really does feel like supporting Spielberg, you're a little bit of like you know justice for this wildly successful and wealthy man but like, i mean uh, uh, but the thing i i don't know there's not it uh, spielberg doesn't inspire i i there's always there's cases where this is not true but like i don't know i think part of that at least within like fan communities is that like there's there's much less aggression i will say less not none uh that uh comes out of people loving spielberg so it's like it's very easy for them yeah. to like uh get overtaken by like the nolan fanboys the michael mann fanboys the you know well other, uh, i think it's a the little pta fanboys i think it's telling that like who's the filmmaker who every month and a half we have this tempest in the teapot over his movies versus popular movies which is scorsese right like mm-hmm. spielberg is just sort of like sitting in the corner just being like i'm just gonna make another you know populist movie like why not and i mean i think some of that has to do with you know in the past maybe 10 15 years he's made some of his weaker movies who? you know which spielberg one? oh okay which ones would you say? I mean, the BFG, sure, yeah. Ready Player One. Please sure. do not come to me if you think Ready Player One is great. No, um, you know stuff like that. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think in that same span of time, he's made, you know, the good Post, mo- really and West Side movies. Story, and the Fablemans. You know what I mean? Like it's. Right. Uh, I love this era of uh, of Spielberg, but um, yeah. So those it was a good year for Fox just in general, and yeah. The thing is, like between Fox and Fox Searchlight, you know, I think this also kind of contributed to the kind of animosity, you know, in people of in our circles for the uh, you know the acquisition of Fox. Is like it's not like they were doing horrible not only is like fox searchlight having this great year but like when your booger movie for your 2017 lineup is murder on the orient express which is financially successful right right you know the the things don't compute Um, yeah ended up making 102 domestic by the way apologies to listeners the uh snowblower next door is really kicking into high gear so i'm sure literally cannot hear it it's it's well our our, effect for this snowy movie it'll come up on my, my audio track almost certainly so um uh, enjoy the dulcet tones of snow being removed from the driveway next door this movie was nominated for three aarp movies for grown-ups awards um including the reader's choice which i don't know if that's a thing anymore I don't think it is. I maybe think they only did this for a year or two. Interesting. I'm not positive. Uh, well, that, read us off the Reader's Choice nominees. Right. So the Reader's Choice nominees, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, Beauty and the Beast, the <laughs> terrible, 
live action, quote unquote, live action Disney remake of Beauty and the Beast starring a whole bunch of people who deserved better and who uh, I'm glad at least they got paid. That monstrosity is when I severed all emotional ties that I have to the Disney Corporation. I do have to say that piece of shit. It's a bummer. It's a and real I didn't bummer. want to be one of those people that hated on that movie so much because it's directed by Bill Condon, who's yeah. like, you know, smaller movies I really like and respect. And he's like one of the few openly gay directors working within the studio system. Yeah. But Bill Condon, my dude, what the fuck? Well, and again, I'm glad he got paid. You know what I mean? Like that is yeah. cash grab the movie and... And it was part of such a trend of them is the other thing, like right. and that got increasingly less creatively uh, inspired to the point where now we get this year's uh, Robert Zemeckis Pinocchio that is just absolutely reviled. I have not seen it, but I believe other people when they say it was as like I, as I have previously said, with every new variant of COVID comes a new Pinocchio. It's true. All right. So anyway, reader's choice: Beauty and the Beast, Dunkirk, Get Out, both of which were Best Picture nominees. Girls Trip, which was a hugely yeah. uh, well-loved phenomenon of a movie that year. Last Flag Flying, the Linklater movie that bombed with Oscar. Uh, the Post, aforementioned, Spielberg masterpiece, The Post. And then The Winner, which is a real time capsule for what was going on in 2017, was Wonder Woman. A movie that everybody was very positive about in a way that now that the second Wonder Woman movie, everybody was very negative about. I think now there's some revisionist and whether I think some of the revisionist stuff on the first Wonder Woman is people who maybe overrated it at the time because, you know, for reasons um, who are now coming down a little bit. And I think also people who are maybe so horrible too. Well, and I think people who didn't like the second one to the point where they are now maybe uh, overstating their dislike for the first Wonder Woman movie to sort of like be in in concert with that first one. So I think um, the levels of of where we are, I think a, a similarly um, another movie around that time, I think Captain Marvel has, has been a similar thing where it's just like, there was a lot of celebration for the success of those movies and rightly so, but Wonder Woman is so much better than Captain Marvel, though. I agree, but also I haven't seen either one of them a second time, so but that was my sense. I would, I probably would need to, like, to be able to, like, have a full defense of it re-watch Wonder Woman, but like, I think Wonder Woman does a lot of things pretty well pretty well in a way that like made the second one just such an egregious failure yeah i don't think about the second one hardly at all i'll still at least think about some stuff that happened in the first wonder woman movie um but anyway first wonder woman movie is funny like yes yeah that's a lot of what i like about it yeah there's good comedy in that all right, other M for G <coughs> nominations for Murder on the Orient Express. It's nominated in Best Ensemble, nominated alongside aforementioned Girls Trip, aforementioned Last Flag Flying. They really liked uh, – what a weird double feature that must have been for AARP voters to see Girls Trip and Last Flag Flying in the same uh, – <laughs> uh, Mudbound, which is a movie that uh, that has kind of gotten forgotten in the years since, but I really liked Mudbound. Uh, I feel like if that was not a Netflix movie, it would not be forgotten. That's maybe true. Um Although I imagine more people saw it 
than would have seen it in an art house art house release. That's the sort of the dichotomy of Netflix, right? Is it's available to so many more people, and yet it disappears in the cultural conversation so much yeah, quicker. They ha- the the movies have so little footprint, right? Uh, the winner in the that category, of quite deservingly, I would say, is Get Out. That's a great ensemble. Good job there. And then director, Best Director uh, nominees were Kenneth Branagh for Murder on the Orient Express, Steven Spielberg for The Post, Ridley Scott for All the Money in the World, which every nomination that that movie got felt like a... Uh, I'm so sorry you had to put up with all of that kind of a thing <laughs> of just like good for you for getting that movie yeah, into the Yeah, I mean theaters. that movie we can we can't talk about it because it did get Oscar nominations right. or at least the one for Plummer. It was also just this kind of like awe of uh, what Ridley Scott pulled off. Well, uh, people forget also in addition movie. to the fact that they had to recast Kevin Spacey and scrub his uh, footage from existence. That also had the bad press of not paying Michelle Williams as much as they paid Mark Wahlberg and like all of that stuff. So I totally forget that Mark Wahlberg is in that. Everybody movie does. How could you it. not? Like he's so forgettable. Not that he's bad in the movie. He he's is. not someone I think is a very good actor usually, unless he's playing someone who is stupid. Or, you know, he is in a, over their head. He's an incredibly director-dependent actor, and Ridley Scott right. is a great director, but he's not somebody who's going to give a shit about that aspect of his movie, right? He's not the one who right. you'd go to, to for as much as, like, David O. Russell's a piece of shit as a human, like, he's been able to get great performances out of Mark Wahlberg. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, not a piece of shit and also a great filmmaker, uh, has been able <laughs> to get at least one great performance out of uh, Mark Wahlberg. And, um, well, Mark Wahlberg kind of also a piece of shit, so while we're talking about stuff like that, uh, lots of pieces of shit in this discussion we're having <laughs> this week um uh merry christmas well, and happy also holidays the other thing about all the money in the world aside from the fact that michelle williams is spectacular in it people also kind of forget people also thought that it was like this just nothing else but a fuck you to kevin spacey that it was he was replaced by christopher Plummer, and christopher Plummer got that oscar nomination yeah but like christopher Plummer was the original first choice wasn't originally available but then also like unquestionably gives a performance 10 times better than what spacey would have given oh like i mean yes but like oscar worthy like i kind of disagree with you in that i think that nomination is 100 percent a fuck you nominated for it i think that's 100 percent a uh, a, if not a fuck you Kevin Spacey nomination, it's a I can't believe that worked. You gave this performance nomination. at the drop of a hat. Like I, I that that is a functional performance. And no, and, I ag- I agree with that uh, that assessment of the nomination. I maybe think the performance is better than you do. I don't. I don't. I I don't think anything of that performance. I just I, like Christopher Plummer. I mean, I love Christopher Plummer. Like, and I love Michelle Williams. I think that movie is kind of a dead fish. But anyway, the fifth nominee for M for G's and director was, of course, uh, Reginald Hudlin for Marshall. We all remember everything about that movie and and love it Best so much. Best original song nominee, Marshall. Again, we can't talk about it on this podcast because of that. But yeah, um, uh, Kate Hudson uh, in, in Marshall, we all remember uh, quite so well. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, also, all right. I have to bring this up. We've talked about this before. Uh, An awards-giving institution that we should talk about more, just in general, because they're always so insane. The Saturn Awards nominated (laughs) 
uh, Murder on the Orient Express for Best Thriller. The Saturn Awards, by the way, which are the uh, science fiction awards, essentially. Like, that's the... Genre. It's not just science fiction. But it started out as... Like, this is the, 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 the genre creep in the Saturn Awards has has gotten more and more expansive <laughs> over the years. Even even among those very liberal definitions of genre movies, right? The Saturn Award nominees for best thriller include Murder on the Orient Express, a movie that not for one second is thrilling. Um Okay, I'm going to read you the nominees. winner for best action adventure film this this award uh year cuz I think they hug hug years is Best action adventure is The Greatest Showman. Perfect. An, an action adventure like no other. Okay, I'm just imagining, like, imagine you are in a video store in, you know, imagine video stores still exist in 2017, and you're wandering the video store. I defy you to put these movies in the same section of the video store. It's Murder on the Orient Express, Brawl in Cell Block 99, Suburbicon, again, the thrill ride of the world that is uh, Suburbicon, The Post, Wind River, and then the winner, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. At most, two of those movies at any given time are in the same genre section of a video store at most you get like the post and three billboards are in drama you know what i mean (laughs) like that's basically uh, it like suburbicon not a thriller the post not a thriller three billboards not a thriller murder on the orient express maybe even in its best incarnation not a thriller i've i've refused to see brawl and cell block 99 um no absolutely not and i haven't seen uh wind river either I Not guess good. I can go on faith that maybe one or two of those movies are thrillers, but I kind of doubt Wind River because everything I see about it is just like Elizabeth Olsen and Jeremy Renner sort of like investigative s- drama. Right. Sure. But like, come on. Come on now. Uh, Saturn Awards, you're crazy as always. And we love you, I guess, for it. Um, we don't love you as much as we love the Umfrigies. Uh We save our our true appreciation for that. Um, what else? What else about this this this? misbegotten film um (laughs) (laughs) i like that at one point kenneth Branagh just says to johnny depp i do not like your face i feel like that should be memed maybe why is that not a screen cap that exists everywhere we should all be sending that screen cap to elon musk exactly exactly um yeah i don't know like this movie bums me out it has all the ingredients, or at least a lot of the ingredients, for something that I should like. And it, I guess, okay, here's what I will say. This movie comes out two years before Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. And mm. I think... This makes a lot of money, obvious. I mean, like, I do think that there is a certain element to this movie that maybe greased some of the wheels for Knives Out, in that, like whodunits and murder mysteries are becoming popular again that i maybe think gets credited to ryan johnson in a way that i'm not quite so sure because like you get even tangential things that are like finger quotes murder mysteries on tv obviously the white lotus you have uh, only murders I mean, in the like, building true crime has kind of grown yeah to be this ubiquitous cultural force yeah that like well but so here's what i will say is a movie like the Branagh version of Murder on the Orient Express really 
allows me to give the credit that I want to give to Ryan Johnson for Knives Out and yeah, for Glass Onion. It's, it's because like, and it's like, and it's not just like, well, that's a bulletproof genre and he was going to succeed no matter what, because we all love a star studded murder mystery. And it's like, no, there are ways to make those movies good. And there are ways to make those movies not good. And he has made them very good. And I think sometimes people want to sort of deny him like he's a movie with he's a director with a lot of fans like to be sure like there the, Ryan right. Johnson is beloved by a lot of people but i think a lot of people who sort of want to go against the grain on him are like he's overrated he's you know uh, murder mysteries are a slam dunk and he you know he casts his movies well and that's really and yada 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 and like this movie i think kind of really dispels that because exactly. i mean it's not just like doing it well, but also giving the audience what they want when they sign up for a movie like this. Because I don't know if this movie does really at any turn, aside from you know Michelle Pfeiffer wig reveal, right? Like, right? I, I don't, I don't know what boxes this movie really checks off. You see famous people, but you don't really see them together, right? Certainly not in any interesting way. You know what I mean? Yeah, and. Yeah. Again, like if your big trailer shot is walking down the dining car of the train, that's the other thing. It's like, how dare a movie not take advantage of the idiosyncrasies of a whole thing taking place on a train in a way that like you you would pick a hundred movies before you would pick this one for like an art directing nomination, right? Right. Because, it does like nothing this movie interesting. is not this movie is not like Snowpiercer, you know, where it's like every and it's like there's it nothing like interesting about this train, like heightened realism. Yeah. But it would be so much more fun if it didn't. Like, why isn't why does the dining car look almost indistinguishable from any other car on this train? Like, it should look like a fucking clue board. It should be. You are on a train called the Orient Express, which just sounds amazing. You're in a movie called Murder on the Orient Express. The Orient Express should be one of the most interesting things about your movie. Uh, and it's and it's so drab. Oh, it's Why so drab. can the audience not distinguish between other people's, you know, lodging cars more than they do? Like, Judy Dench's room, like, has some drapery or something, but, like, it should look like a, an entirely different train. Why did the... Um, more more than not disappointing HBO series run starring Merritt Weaver and Donald <sighs> Gleason do so much more interesting things with Amtrak than this movie does <laughs> with the Orient Express. Like, honestly, uh, for as much as run ended up going off the rails, no pun intended, except maybe pun intended. Quite literally, um, at, like the end of episode three. Um, but like, at the very least... That movie gave you great chemistry between its two leads, and it explored the space of the fucking Amtrak trains in a way that I found interesting. So, like, Kenneth Branagh, you have no excuse, and it's uh, infuriating. Should we move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, let's do that. What is the IMDb game, Chris? Why don't you tell us? Uh, well, every week we end our episodes. You know, the caboose of this train <laughs> is the IMDb game. Yes. Where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. Indeed. Many of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits. We'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If it, that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints and stabbings from multiple authors 
Oscar winners and nominees. Exactly. All right. Uh, Chris, your choice this week is to go first or second. Give or guess. I hinted before we were recording that I maybe got a little evil um, with you because you have been tough on me lately. Yes. So for you... I have pulled from the upcoming, uh, what is it, A Haunting in Venice or whatever, the next Poirot adventure. I have pulled from that ensemble for you, Kelly Riley. Oh, you're a dick. Any television. There's no television because we have liberated this good and interesting actress from Yellowstone. It's so insane, though, that like Yellowstone, like one of the most watched shows on television and is one of the things she is known for is not on her known for. Okay. Um, well, this is just cruel and I'm going to struggle mightily. I, I hope to God flight is on there. Flight is on there. The one movie I know her from. She has to play. Do I know any movies that she's in besides flight? Honestly, I might not, I might need to like (laughs) jump to hints, right? I'm just going to like haunting in haunting in Venice. No. No, it's not on there already. Um, Citizen Kane. <coughs> Citizen Kane? No. No. Um, uh, she's not in Citizen Kane, so it shouldn't count. But I will give you your years. Yeah, give me the years. We have 2005, 2008, 2009. Jesus. 2005. Multiple Oscar nominee. Oh, Okay. 2005 in Best Picture or in lower categories? Not in Best Picture. Is she in Walk the Line? She's not in Walk the Line. Okay. Does this movie have acting nominees? Nominations? It does. This is a movie you like, a director we have, we both like and have defended before. Defended is an interesting word. Why Why would an actor we need I feel defending? like that's overplaying my hand and giving this to you too early. I need to be making you suffer. No, no, I don't want to suffer. 2005, um, a director we defend, uh, acting nominee is... Do, 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 do. I keep thinking of 04 now. I'm trying to like, no, 05, 05. <laughs> um, is she in North Country? She's not. Well, she could be in North Country, but this is not. <laughs> okay. Conceivably, she could be in North Country. And there is a world in which she is in uh, North Country. Okay. Um, 2005. Who even wins best? Not an acting winner. No, I know. No, but I'm just trying to like orient myself in the categories a little bit. Um, uh, duh, duh. and then definitely not even close to winning. Definitely not even close to winning. That's an interesting at way to most put that. Was third place, so it's just one acting nominee. At most, was third place. Okay. Um, and no question was anywhere above third place. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Um, good acting nomination. Oh, so it's not a history of violence. Constant Gardner. No. Damn. Constant Gardner is One. an acting winner. It's an acting winner. Right, 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 right. Okay. Um, Capote is an acting winner. She's not in Brokeback Mountain. Why would somebody not be conceivably above third place? Because it is bad? I don't understand. No, because... 
first and second place were so far ahead. Oh, okay. All right. So we're talking about um, Best Actor. So is she in Hustle and Flow? We're not talking about Best Actor. Just Christ almighty. (laughs) Um, I hate this already. You did this on purpose to make me frustrated and to make me look silly. Eric Stoltz was hard. (laughs) This is harder. Um, Eric Stoltz was in multiple movies. Eric Stoltz is in Pulp Fiction. Like, Kelly Riley is not in uh, one of the uh, movies. A lot of, of people time. are in Pulp Fiction. Do you know how long it's been since I've watched Pulp Fiction? All right. He's the most famous, one of the most famous scenes of Pulp Fiction. Anyway. Um, so, Best you Actress was a movie that is the right category that won. What's that? You guessed a movie that is the right category. I guessed a movie that is the right category. But you said it's what? a category where like it was like two people like neck and neck to win. Not necessarily neck and neck, but like the only two conceivable winners. Oh, is she in Cinderella Man? She's not in Cinderella Man. <laughs> Wrong category. So not actor, not supporting actor, not supporting actress, because Rachel Weiss was way ahead of everybody, and not actress, because Reese Witherspoon is way ahead of everybody. I never said not actress. I said not walk the line. Yeah, but Reese Witherspoon is not neck and neck with anybody in that category. I ne- I didn't say they were neck and neck. I said there was a very clear first and second place and no one else had a chance. Is she in Pride and Prejudice? She is in Pride and Prejudice what? as Carolyn Bingley. Christ almighty. Also, we don't defend Joe Wright. Joe Wright is like, uh, needs no defense. We defend Joe Wright. No defense needed. He's the best. Um... Fine. 2008, 2009. Jesus. All right, 2008. Is she in The Dark Knight? She's not in The Dark Knight, but this is a 2009 is a blockbuster. 2009 is a blockbuster. Blockbuster. End of the year blockbuster. Oh. Not Avatar. Action blockbuster or blockbuster from a different genre? She in The Blind Side? The Saturn Awards might have said that it was an action blockbuster. <laughs> I wouldn't call it an action movie. Um, so not the blind side is what we're saying. Um, Golden Globe winner. Golden Globe winner. Oh, nine. Um, Golden Globe. Uh, maybe a comedy Golden Globe. Oh, what was oh, nine? Was 09 The Hangover? Uh, possibly, but it is not The Hangover. Acting winner in, in comedy? In Comedy Globe? Yes. Okay. Um, who are we talking about in 09 in comedy? In Barney's version? Um, <laughs> no. Um, oh, god damn it. This is so frustrating. This was the year of The Hangover. This, this movie was not nominated for Best Picture, at the Globes in comedy or musical, but it won one of the two acting okay. comedy Globes. Um, the Last Station? No. He shouldn't win no, for that. Not um, a comedy. Uh, also, not, well, I defy you to tell me what genre The Last Station is, because we don't remember anything <laughs> about that movie. Um, okay, so Drama uh, drama Globe was won by Sandra Bullock, Comedy Globe. Is she in Julian Julia? She is not in Julia and Julia. You are looking in the wrong In the wrong category. category. All right. Actor at the Globes. Actor in uh, Crazy Heart. It, that was drama. That was That was drama. not seen as, as musical. Okay. Um, it, listen, if you are about a musician and it is 
like sad they don't consider you like yeah star born was submitted drama but ray was submitted as a musical right because yes. DiCaprio won for The Aviator. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right, so Best Actor in a com- Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes in 2009. Daniel Day-Lewis did not win for nine. And Kelly Riley is definitely not in nine, as far as I can <laughs> recall. Um, was this person... I'll who- give you the other nominees that didn't win. Okay. Matt Damon in The Informant. Michael Stuhlbarg in A Serious Man should have won, should have been Oscar nominated. Sure. Probably my best actor of that year. Wow. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt in 500 Days of Summer. Keep in mind, this is a blockbuster. It's a blockbuster. End of the year blockbuster, major star, especially at this moment. Oh, Okay. Probably single-handedly made this movie into the huge hit that it was. Robert this Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. in Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. I have no memory of him winning Best Actor for that. Wow. Okay. Avatar was gonna take us to the cleaners. Right. 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 Yeah. Shockingly, I don't go back and watch the Robert Downey <laughs> Jr. Golden Globe speech from the 2009 Golden Globes a whole lot. Um, all right. What's our other year? 2008? 2008 is probably harder to place because I think it didn't come out until 2009 in the States. Um, it is a UK movie. I don't know if you've seen this, so I'm going to go easier on you for this because it Great. is... It's it's definitely the hard one here. I could have gotten the other one. Is this one of those like Brendan Gleeson movies that like... No, this no. is this is a movie that is is it made in Dagenham with uh, horror fans. Oh. Like it, this is definitely more of like an extreme thriller than a horror movie to me. Hmm. But it's probably if you've heard the name of this movie, not from like horror circles, I wouldn't be surprised if you've seen this movie. But uh, the actor in this movie would be around this time like winning a winning acting prizes for like four movies at a time in 08 like 0809 this is an actor who's like suddenly in 15 movies oh young and like this would be one that would get mentioned it's like yeah he's great in this and this and this and by the way did you see this like totally fucked up movie oh, that interesting. he's also inexplicably great in Young, sort of like young twenties and thirties actor, or more thirties and forties. Okay, all right. Uh, Sarsgaard, um, not Sarsgaard. Like a leading man or like character actor. Uh, he got thrust into leading man stuff, but I would argue he's probably better as a character actor. Okay, um, he got thrust in the leading man stuff. Um. Oh, golly, jeez. I'm going to just give this to you in the hopes that it gives you the movie. It is Michael Fassbender. Oh, that's, yes, that was uh, around that time. Um, so he's in a thriller slash horror around it's that time. pretty gruesome. He wasn't, no, that's Paul Bettany who was in uh, Priest and, and, and Legion around that time. It's pretty gruesome. Yeah. Oh, God. I may just give it to you so we can move on. Yeah. I've seen Eden Lake. I've never maybe heard of Eden Lake. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a good movie. Is it's it? Up. 
Okay. Yes. No. No Fast idea. Fassbender is like really good at playing I am being horrifically tortured. <laughs> so what you just did to me is the equivalent of we're out in the sandbox playing and I overly rambunctiously throw a toy to you and I throw it a little too hard and it bonks you on the head and you in response pull out a hammer and 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 <laughs> Bash me what I just in did. the skull. That is not what I is just the, did. Is exactly what you just did, Kelly Riley. I'm going to be Maybe so mean I to you next week. I blew over your sandcastle. I didn't hit you with a oh hammer. Oh my god. I'm going to give you the most impossible one next week. You're going to... Oh, it's going to be brutal, and I'm going to enjoy it. All right. Um, All right. Who do you have for me? I have one somebody who is not nearly as obscure. So I went through the Kenneth Branagh filmography. I went to one of his earliest movies, uh, a movie called Peter's Friends, which starred him ah. and his, uh, at the time, uh, uh, wife, Emma Thompson, and all, a whole bunch of their friends at the time. Hugh Laurie is in this movie. Stephen Fry is in this movie. That movie is dated as hell, but it is so good. Yeah, it's very charming. Uh, one of the people in this movie, it's sort of like English the Big Chill a little bit, right? And so, Except good. Uh, and then I imagine this the sort of the uh, Mary Kay Place uh, equivalent in that movie uh, <laughs> is Imelda Staunton. And so oh. to you, I say... Give me Imelda Staunton's known for. Um. Well, Vera Drake. Yes, correct. I kind of want to guess the National Theater Live Follies, but I know it's not <laughs> going to be that. Um, Order of the Phoenix. Correct. The, that's the right Harry Potter movie. Yep. All right. So uh, am I going to guess another mike lee she's so good and upsetting at the beginning of another year i'm just gonna say another year incorrect strike one okay um pride yes pride that was the one i Uh, thought you would take a little time on but yeah very good her scene with night is so good we maybe should do pride soon so we can talk about i i've said like twice before on this podcast recently that we're going to do it for pride month in june we're gonna okay uh spoiler alert for six months or five months away we're gonna do we're gonna do it yes um okay so i have three only one incorrect guess i don't think that another Harry Potter is on there. Um, what's another movie where she's an asshole? Because there is like a grouchy performance that's not as bad as Another Year, but she's still like a grouch, and why can't I think of it? Um, I might throw something off just to get the year, because I'm willing to bet that it's post-Vera Drake... Unless it's, like, much ado about nothing, because she's in that. As, like... She's, like, horny as hell in that movie. I remember when we did that episode. I'll just say much ado about nothing. Incorrect. I know. I'm a little bit satisfied that you had to go to hints, even though I think you're going to get it now right away once I give you the year. Your missing year is 1998. 1998. Okay, so that is before Vera Drake. Is it... She's not in... No, Topsy Turvy's 99. Wait, what was 98 that she would have been in? All right, I'm a little satisfied that you should be getting this and you're not getting it. Maybe this. I'm going to be stupid. Um, yeah. Oh, it's a... Uh, yeah. yeah, you should be satisfied. Yeah. She's so funny. It's Shakespeare in it's Love. It's Shakespeare in Love. Yes. Yeah. Ha! 
ha, you don't look as bad as me, but you look a little bit bad. And that is satisfying <laughs> for me. So very good. Um, that's a good known for for Imelda Staunton, though. I feel like that's a that's a representative spread of, you know, her big uh, her big mainstream uh, franchise movie, her Oscar nomination, her early work in a Best Picture winner. And then she's rad and pride. Yeah. I think that's your ideal. I think that's what you want out of a known for, right? Your critical hit, your commercial hit, your early thing that people are like, she was in that movie, and then the one that's not like the others. Uh, the the good. fan favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we make this for the fans and not the, the critics. All right, Chris, that's all. That's for our episode, A Murder on the Orient Express. This comes We've arrived out, at our final destination. This we have comes arrived out in the station. On New Year's Day, just after New Year's? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, right after New Year's. New Year, same bullshit here on this at Oscar Buzz. There we go. Um, so happy New Year to you all and uh, to all a good – wait, that's Christmas, right? That's uh, uh, whatever. Literally. Happy 2023. Hope it doesn't suck. All right. Um, that's our episode. If you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishatoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. And you should follow our Instagram, which is, Chris, remind me. This had Oscar buzz. Yeah, this had Oscar buzz. I'm adding that to our boilerplate. Right Throwing now. in a lot of goofy things every once in a while, just when you're least expecting it. Uh, a callback to some of our favorite bits will. Uh, yeah, you've hear. been having a good time exploring the space on Instagram. You'll get hints of upcoming episodes. Yes. All right. This had Oscar buzz on Instagram. Chris, where can the listeners find you specifically? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember you can rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So volunteer to get non-fatally stabbed in the back and then handwrite an incriminating yet positive thing about us won't you that's all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz 